Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 1971's Blind Man, a spaghetti western that stars Tony Anthony as the titular blind gunslinger attempting to rescue 50 women from a Mexican bandit named Domingo, so he can continue to fulfil his noble mission of delivering them safely to their pre-purchased arranged marriages to Texan miners. It's noble, noble mission. Second billing for the film, however, goes to one Ringo Starr, who plays Domingo's equally villainous brother Candy, and this marks Ringo's first post-Beatles lead role in the film. Uh, and one that's quite a departure after his turn in The Magic Christian, released just two years before. And it is quite a significant difference from Magic Christian. I was trying to work out, like, if there was any kind of guiding principle that Ringo was trying to follow in terms of how he was going to set about on a new acting career, um, what might that be that led him to choose a role like Magic Christian followed by a role like Candy in Blind Man? And I couldn't work out, like, you know, what what might I be, what might I be thinking? And then I realised that there's one connection between the two roles, which is both films do allow Ringo to have a scene where he is surrounded by lots of naked women. Yes. Not not saying that's the sole reason why he's chosen these roles. No, sure, But sure. it might be a factor. Yeah, fine. And, and, and why not? Yes, you're Ringo star, of course. Yeah, happy the man who is who can spend <laughs> his professional his life. Job. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but it's quite a departure in the sense that he was a comedy foil and now he's gone to villainous misogynist. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. mis- villainous Mexican misogynist. I think yes. It's probably a, a more accurate description. Yes. Yes. What do we think about Ringo playing against type and playing against his image, I think, for this role? Well, I mean, we, I suppose we've, we've been here before in terms of uh, that will be the day, which we talked about last year, where we, we spoke about you know, is it would it have been slightly jarring for audiences to look at character of Mike that he played in that film, uh, who was not not a nice guy. He was a womanizer, and and, and yes, so I mean, it, it, he is kind of like playing against type. But then, what is Ringo Starr's type? You know, at, at this point, are we talking about the image uh, that he has with the public, or are we talking about him as an actor? You know, I, I mean, in fact, are, are they are they even really two separate things? 
I suppose when you, when you talk about someone playing against type, so think about, you know, when Robert De Niro started to do comedy roles like Analyze This and Meet the Parents and things right. like that, he was very much playing against type. Like nobody expected him to do roles like that. Yes. At this point, Ringo, I can hear the hesitation in your voice because you think I'm about to compare Ringo Starr to Robert De Niro. Well, no, no, actually, no, not even that, actually. <laughs> right. I'm about to compare Robert De Niro to Ringo Starr. Ah, okay. Uh, in that um, Robert De Niro going down the comedy route, yeah. um, I, I feel like as justifiable as that decision may be, uh, in hindsight, it's still not Robert De Niro suddenly choosing to play a villainous Mexican misogynist no <laughs> whose first major scene in this film we should uh, call this out early on is beating up and raping a woman y- yes yeah <laughs> so, so and as you were <laughs> please continue your point thank you very much uh, so um, I, I suppose what I'm saying is like has Ringo Starr at this point established a type from which to deviate it, it, does anyone know what that is? Who is Ringo Starr? Who are any of us, really? Yeah, exactly. Uh, when I say go against type, I guess I didn't even mean from an acting perspective. I just meant his image. His yeah. image as uh, probably the most of the lovable mop tops. Hmm. Um, and, and I realised, you know, obviously the Beatles' career meant that the the view of Ringo would have evolved so much over the course of that, you know, those uh, nearly 10 years. But still, I think Ringo was able to maintain a sense of him being like the the lovable beetle puppy dog eyes yeah it's the most relatable i'm sure yeah um sort of you know one of his primary purposes in the beatles was to be the one you could relate to so i suppose it's natural that you know if he's he's going to pursue an acting career and he's you know without doubt the best actor out of the beatles um if he's going to pursue an an acting career afterwards it's natural that you if you're mainly familiar with him from the Beatles, that you're going to look for those sort of relatable elements in his performances. Now, mm. uh, and yes, it is probably true to say that in uh, the character of Candy, who is, as aforementioned, a, a, a Mexican uh, misogynist who beats up and rapes women. Yes, it is quite hard to find... Uh, <laughs> sure, relatable it, elements. It, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, maybe that's that's what he's going for. I mean, you know, a- actors want to stretch themselves, right? You know, but but also, I, I mean, actors want to stretch themselves. But this being so early on his in his acting career, mm. and we say that as if we know that this was a deliberate attempt on his part to pursue acting uh, as his main career. Mm-hmm. So, given that idea, it seems to me that maybe choosing to play Candy in this film is him wanting to very early on establish range for mm. himself as an actor. Yeah. Because his other roles have all been either roles in the Beatles or sort of quirky sixties, uh, <laughs> quirky sixties sex comedies, <laughs> which is I think what we um, unfairly labelled Magic Christian has in our yeah. episode on that. But yes, but you know, I mean, it's it's a massive departure. But I suppose you know this is maybe the first chance he has, or you know, he, he wants to put his first foot forward in the world of acting, and it needs to be a credible choice, mm. not just Ringo Starr playing a version of Ringo Starr. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, bear in mind, too, that Ringo always loved cowboys and always loved, you know, yeah, really. uh, westerns. You know, it's a bit, it's a big part of his personality, you know, like his love for country music. Before he got in the Beatles, I think he was uh, trying to, he, he was uh, trying to sort of emigrate to America. You know, I'm not sure if it's going to be like a ranch hand or something like that. But I think that was kind of in his mind. Like, you know, I think there was some kind of admin thing with him filling out the wrong form, which meant he couldn't go or something, or something like that. <laughs> I, I forget what it was, but it was something along those lines. But yeah, like, uh, and, you know, him doing sort of country songs like Act Naturally, you know, it's it's all part of, and, um, you know, Don't Pass Me By, of course, you know, sort of very country tinge. That's sort of, uh, it's where his heart is, you know. He will have really wanted to do a western for sure and you would expect then for his love of cowboys his his love of westerns and cowboys um that his first role might be as a cowboy yeah and not as a villainous mexican misogynist (laughs) 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 like it but but also but you know (laughs) not wants to hammer that point home but like he's ringo star presumably Mm. he would have easily been able to find a vehicle that would allow him to be the hero of the story and set out in you know in in the world in that way, as opposed to this second billing in the film. Mm. But actually, it's not 
probably the the character with the second most amount of screen time in the film. Yeah. And he's he yeah his brother of main villain. Yeah. It's 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 an interesting choice. I mean, it, it feels like maybe he's dipping his toe in the water a little bit, but also having to prove himself more so than some of the other acting choices that we've we've covered. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but I think at, at this point, you know, I wonder how much cachet he has as an actor to be able to uh, certainly as as a star he has a fair amount of cachet and actually like the music he's releasing commercially is like doing doing pretty well like he mm. and george at this point are probably the two most commercially successful ex-beatles you know 71 going into 72 around around that around that time but yeah in terms of, of film roles you know I, I i'm not sure he would have had the opportunity or i'm not sure he could have been able to manufacture the opportunity easily enough to go off and be the star in a western yeah, maybe. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd, you'd expect that to be really easy now. You'd expect like any of the Beatles to be able to walk into whatever they wanted to do next. But maybe right. you're right. Maybe it's, you know, it's a uh, different world at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we know obviously that so the film is produced by Alan Klein. Uh, we know that Alan Klein, having taken on the role of managing the Beatles, would have uh, and and obviously did. Uh, lobby hard for Ringo to get this role because it's what Ringo would have wanted and, and I think it's fair to say that Alan Klein would have wanted to curry favour yeah. with each of the Beatles doing whatever they wanted to do next. Definitely. Yeah, it, but but given that, I wonder if Ringo would have been able to secure a leading role as the hero in a Western <laughs> it, which feels like it might have been you know more suited to what he might want to do. don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But, you know, also, you know, this presupposes that he wanted to be the lead in anything. So bear yeah. in mind, like, he's been a, a pretty content, you know, sort of unfair to call him a, a side man. But, That's you know, true. He's, but, but he's he's never really wanted to be front and centre in the Beatles or any of his creative pursuits. You know, he's been sort of, you know, Magic Christian, he was sort of, like, quite happy to be, you know, second fiddle to Peter Sellers. You yeah, know, that's in, true. In, in and also that's, that goes along with, you know, he spent the last 10 years not being the Beatle in the spotlight. So maybe actually that would be, you know, playing to his comfort zone. Yeah, more. I think, I think he needed quite a lot of cajoling to do lead vocals and yeah, things like true. that. You know, yeah. it's that, that story about, I think, when when he sang uh, with a little help from my friends, I think the others had to stand around and, like, really sort of be his cheerleader so he would hit the high note at the end. Yeah. You know, it was just it was sort of quite uncomfortable with it in general. Um, so yeah, I suppose it makes sense, you know, in, in in terms of personality, that he's not necessarily going to go out and say, "I need to be the star," of, you know, the the main, you know, the male lead in every film I do. You know, that makes sense, I guess. Uh, fun fact about the film: uh, Did you spot the cameos at the start? I, I'm aware that those cameos are, are there, and I know who you're talking about, but no, I didn't spot them. Um, I I feel like it's been very very generous of you to leave the reveal to me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so uh, both Alan Klein and Mal Evans are in the film uh, right at the very start when uh, the blind man shoots the bell and wakes up his business partner Skunk. We see Skunk uh, wake up on a bed, uh, which also contains two other men and a woman. Oh, okay. So uh, the idea is presumably they've all had a lovely night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, had a lovely time of it. And those two other men are Alan Klein and Mal Evans. Right. And um, as he gets woken up from his slumber by this um, <laughs> attacked bell, um, <laughs> yeah, we see, we, see, we see Alan Klein and Mal Evans get up from the bed as well. And that's a nice, neat cameo. I can understand how Alan Klein got that role as producer on the film. And, yeah. and, and also, at this point, it's worth pointing out that he was also... Tony Anthony's manager, yeah, and had worked with him on Tony Anthony's previous spaghetti westerns as well. So they're very much sort of partners in that kind of genre of yeah. film uh, before this one was made. I guess Mao was just visiting the set that day. But I think isn't he still working for Apple at this point? I'm not completely yes. sure of the timeline actually. Whether he's still whether he's still employed by Apple at this point, right. and it, but if so, what you know, what, what, what as what what he's yes. doing? I'm not sure yeah. as skunk's male bed partner right okay it's probably not his official job description <laughs> but you know <laughs> no does anyone know what Mal's official job description is no right you know it's like you know it's either that or go and find an anvil yeah exactly know. anvil wrangler yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so we went, we've gone straight into Ringo's role. Uh, we should probably do a little bit more of the basics and, and cover that. Uh, so Tony Anthony is the star. He's produced the film as well. Uh, I think the story, yeah, story came from him, initial yep. story. This is off the back of a successful run of other spaghetti westerns that he has made where he plays a similar kind of character, not blind, but sort of a stoic gunslinger mm-hmm. type called The Stranger yeah, in a yeah. series of films. Uh, and obviously he is him who's carrying this movie as the main central anti-hero for the film. Yeah. So given all of that, why does the film hate women so much? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's, cause it's a Western and it was fine to hate women back then. No, it's, it, 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 it's uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this, this film, like a lot of films of the 1970s and like a lot of Westerns in general, is not all that sympathetic to its female characters. It's fair. To this say. is very much falling into the um, uh, exploitation era of filmmaking as well. Mm. The, and I mean, I'm not hugely well versed in uh, the genre of spaghetti westerns, but a lot of this film reminded me of similar exploitation films from that period that yeah. were made in the horror genre. Yeah, yeah. So things like I Spit on Your Grave, all right. like those really low budget horror films that just seem to be made uh, on the basis that there's a built-in excuse to show naked women get beaten up a lot mm. and raped essentially and there's just yeah. a lot of that in the film right and you know with, with context those moments uh, where you know there's nudity in the film and violence towards women in the film is justified because of the characters mm-hmm. uh, that are portrayed in the film yeah so you could argue that overall the story and it doesn't need to be that way but they're written as necessary story points in the movie right but the way that the film lingers on them is where it feels gratuitous so yeah. there is like a two and a half minute scene of naked women in a shower with just water getting poured over them yeah and thrown at them yeah and it's like <laughs> this doesn't need to be that long i get it you want them to be clean <laughs> yeah, right? yeah 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 sure yeah um so and there's there's lots of that kind of thing like there's you're playing to a certain kind of audience with this film who are where where there is a um I, I guess an interest desire to see where the limits are pushed in certain areas in terms of sex and violence, mm-hmm. which is just starting to happen in this decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, so that's sort of feature of this sort of era of seventies exploitation cinema. You know, so like Pe- Sam Peckinpah is doing yes doing this. You know, at, you know at, at this point as well. Uh, and there's there's lots of it going on. Um, yes, yeah, definitely straw dog vibes on here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, so morally, it doesn't quite know where it stands, and and like you're you're right to sort of try to draw the distinction between a film in which characters do sexist things and the film itself being sexist. That yes. is not necessarily the same thing. Here, it happens to be the same thing, <laughs> uh, um, yes. but but it, but it is not always necessarily yeah. the same thing. I'm right to make the hypothetical point. But... <laughs> <laughs> you are, <laughs> um, but you know, I do think it is very confused about what its hero's sort of quest is here. So Blind Man uh, is a gunslinger who has this contract to save these 50 mail-order brides who are supposed to be going to be uh, sold into like marriage with these Texan miners but have been kidnapped somewhere along the way and instead are essentially sex slaves to these bunch of uh, Mexican bandits. So his mission really is to rescue them from one type of sex slavery uh, so he can you know, claim money to sell them into another type of sex slavery. Yes. Now, sex slavery generally frowned upon. I think, <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah. I, I think it's fair yeah. to say. So you're not really sure who to root for. Um, and I suppose these days, if you were doing something similar... It's fair to say, you know, we, it, there's lots of anti-heroes these days. You know, that's not a, that's not something that was sort of unique to the 70s. But I do think those lines would be a bit more clearly drawn, you know. Well, yeah, interesting, because I think that this, the whole film, and obviously, you know, this comes off the back of the spaghetti western craze, which would have started from the um, Sergio Leone movies. For Clint Eastwood and The Man of No Name would have been like the archetype anti-hero for this type of film. I think the difference is is that the the cause tends to be more noble and the journey to get to to achieve that objective uh has a looser sense of justice yes so what you might have is you've got a an anti-hero whose goal is to either fulfill a job like this one uh, like in this film 
or to try to get a lot of money for pot of gold or whatever or to get revenge on the death of a loved one or mm-hmm. something right and, that, and it's like that that's that's the ultimate objective of the film yeah but along the way he might take a bribe or, or steal something or act immoral towards a woman or yeah. whatever you know yeah this feels a little bit inverted because yeah. you've got the ultimate objective is to sell these women into these arranged marriages yeah but along the way you've got like a moment in the film where uh pilar um who's the object of affection of ringo Starr's character candy mm-hmm. at one point she leans in to kiss him and he puts his hand up and says no not now <laughs> <laughs> because he's at that point not interested in taking advantage of her yeah uh, and it's like, well, I'm glad you're not interested in taking advantage of her, but there's 50 women over here, yeah. <laughs> which you're willing to sell for the, the contract amounts that you've been promised. Yes. No. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a grey area, isn't it, Marley? <laughs> it's a huge um, grey area. And, and what can't be, so what also confuses it are the allegiances he makes along the way, because the the, the women are actually stolen by Domingo. Uh, going Taking back a step, Blind Man has a business partner called Skunk, Skunk allows women to be kidnapped by Domingo, the Mexican bandit. He uses his women as a lure to trap the general. Yep. Uh, which he does and holds him hostage hostage along with the women. Yeah. And then Blind Man comes and frees the women and also frees the general at the same time. Yeah. The general who was lured because <laughs> he was quite happy to capitalize on this idea of there being 50 women in this fortress that yep. he would be able to, him and his men would be able to enjoy their own whim. So then there's this bond between the blind man and the general, yep. even though they have different uh, objectives with these women. Mm. You know, so it doesn't feel like anyone's really quite on the right side of justice here, I'll be honest. No, no. Um, and then obviously all of that gets completely scuppered right at the very end of the film. The last frame is that the general has double crossed the blind man and kidnapped the women again yeah, yeah, yeah. for his own means. Yeah, yeah. And it should be pointed out the general is a, a sort of overtly comic character as yes. well. In that the way, God damn the, you crazy gringo. Yeah, there's a lot of that. He has know. his catchphrase. Yeah, yeah. And and just sort of laughs uproariously at lots and lots of things. Everything. There's a, there's a good uh, comic scene where they have to escape by jumping off a, a, a roof, which is like, like about a 10 foot roof. And the blind man jumps onto his horse and then the general tries to jump onto his horse and the horse moves at the last minute and, you know, and he, and he falls onto the ground, you know. So, yeah, the general is quite an odd character in that you're, it, it's as if you're being set up to like him. And there are times when you think, oh, no, he, he's on the right side of everything. And then there, there are times you think, oh, no, he, he very much is not at all, you know. And, and I think that that's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, yeah, you're right. You're, you're set up to like him because he's like a comedy accomplice yeah. uh, in the overall story. Even though his plans for this group of women are clearly uh, nefarious. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons, going back to your point about how sometimes the characters, characters being sexist can, can be a different thing to the film being sexist. But in this instance, they are the same thing because the way that the the overall group of fifty women are treated in the film is as a MacGuffin. Yes, they're very much treated as an object, as a as a thing that people want and use. Oh yeah, yeah. without there being any sort of broader depiction of what any one of those single women might actually be like, or you know, have any kind of personality they might have. Yeah, there's a scene uh, towards the end as well where the blind man allows their captor uh domingo's sister yeah to get beaten up by the women yes like he so he frees the women and then basically allows her in the cage um and he basically they all like scream and like crowd around her and start hitting her and stuff like that and the expression that the blind man then gives is kind of like rolling his eyes like oh, women will be women <laughs> we're gonna let them have their fun yes and then he and then eventually he uh shoots his gun a couple of times to get him to stop and he's like you know like okay now we need to get back to business yeah. you know and it's very much just a weird sort of you know like they're absolutely rightly and justified and what an interesting turn in the story to get let them have their own revenge on the person who has you know treated them so horribly but he doesn't even let them do that. It's just, it's just a, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna let have this fun moment of oh, women, eh? Cool. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. And, and I mean, carry on. They do. I mean, while while they're beating her up and shouting at her, I suppose maybe that means that the film technically passes the Bechdel test. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> 
But then, no, I suppose not technically. Well, none of them speak, so I'm not sure that's well, true. She, well, she, actually, she's the only named female character, and her character is called Sweet Mama. Yes. So, <laughs> well, no, to be fair, there's Pilar as well. That's sorry, no, yes, you're quite right. But Sweet Mama is, yeah, is um, yeah, and and we we could probably just spend this entire episode listing all of the many moments which are questionable. Yeah. But again, blind man's anti-hero status. I'm not sure how that extends to when he eventually ties up Sweet Mama to a post. Mm-hmm. For I mean, he lights and fuses as if he's going to kill her, but then yeah. like makes sure that there's am- ample time for his brother to find her and free her anyway. Yeah. But what he does after he ties her, uh, as a blind man, is just Copperfield straight away. Uh, yes. Yeah. And then when she reacts badly to that, mm. he gets aggressive and he just rips all the clothes off. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I guess, again, I'm not really sure how that falls within the definition of an anti-hero because <laughs> we have this sense of the, he, he acts like he has the moral high ground a lot of the time. Yes. <laughs> Very difficult to to reconcile the, you know, a lot of the scenes in here with that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I do think that one of the ways in which it, it draws a kind, kind of a moral line is that because we're told that the the men who like these women are sort of you know destined for you know uh, w- whatever your thoughts on male order brides and essentially uh, you know the selling of women into slavery personally I'm against it um, <laughs> but um, you know whatever is happening there you are told that it's it's minors uh, who these women are kind of destined for i.e. like salt of the earth guys types and actually what's happened along the way is that they've been kidnapped by these sort of like rich avaricious bandits yes. you know and so th- there is a kind of injustice going on there because you know i suppose not, not that you're supposed to think about it th- this deeply but i but, think you know, what but, else are we doing if not this well quite right yeah but if you're supposed to think anything about it at all like there does tend to be a general consensus in, in films that like r- rich people behave badly rich people are greedy and have got there through cheating people in some mm. way that kind of tends tends to be it, it's a sort of good shorthand for who is a good and bad person you know and so i suppose probably the road it's trying to go down is that uh, even though we never meet any of these texan miners which might help a bit um like they're probably like salt of the earth types who just want to like kick back after a hard day's mining and uh have sex with their male order bride you know oh fine 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 of course you know? <laughs> i mean there, there is an element of and my reading of this was as well was to and and this is clearly problematic, but the uh, my reading of the film was that the fifty male order brides were willing male order brides. Yeah, you know, like yeah. they weren't they weren't slaves yes. who were then tied up and you know uh, and forced to go to uh, their new husbands. Yeah. Like that is a path which they were willing participants in. They yeah. weren't trying to run away at any point. You know, they were. Where the blind man was supposed to be taking them was, as far as they were concerned, where they wanted to go next. Right, yeah. Again, problematic. But, yes, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, but I suppose at least, yeah, the idea being that at least they would be financially rewarded for that and live quite comfortably. Oh, and fine. I, I, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose, is is what is trying to be said. But let's move away from all of the, uh, the messy business about the um, uh, sex slavery. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Let's talk more about uh, Japanese literature. Sure. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yes. 
I knew I was going to be able to seamlessly segue into this. <laughs> so, um, uh, the character of Blind Man is clearly based on the Japanese uh, legendary character of Satoichi. There's been a very successful run of films and TV series based on this character, mm. and it, it is one that is a blind samurai. So the idea is that he, he almost possesses supernatural-like abilities despite his blindness, mm -hmm. but his proficiency with a sword and his strong sense of justice um, helps so this is a this is a spaghetti western that's based on that character, much mm -hmm. in the way that the Fistful of Dollars spaghetti western Leone movies are based on uh, Yojimbo, sort of similar kind of like uh, aimless Ronin samurai kind of character. Mm -hmm. They're all based, in, uh, you know, from taking characters from I guess uh, Japanese movies like the Kurosawa uh, films, and then placing them in a sort of more western, uh, in this case, literally western. Uh, environment yeah now i think that's a great idea i think it's a what it, it's a it's a interesting thing to do to be able to take that character and transpose them into a diff, completely different genre i don't know how effective this film is in doing that yes and i'll tell you why right <laughs> before you uh agree with me the reason why the idea the concept of that character works is because everyone who comes up against him underestimates that character because mm. of his blindness mm -hmm. and then he proves himself to have this incredible ability to fight regard you know regardless of his disability yeah and and it's this constant idea that he's meeting these these bad guys and fighting against his villains and stuff who underestimates him mm -hmm. i don't think that happens in this film yes i think many of the bad guys in this film estimates him <laughs> <laughs> correctly estimates yes him. yeah estimates him the correct amount yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. because he often can't fight yeah he often gets caught kidnapped tortured extensively yeah, yeah. he often wins battles through luck yeah uh, through other people um saving him yeah and i feel like it does that sort of transposition of that legendary conceptual character a massive disservice yeah, so I think um, uh, you, you could go a bit further, actually. So, you know, it's not just that it, usually what happens in the with these characters is that uh, people underestimate them. It, it's that they underestimate them and then the, their disability is actually an advantage. I, yes. The story you're being told is that it gives them like a heightened sense of some kind. So you mm. think about like, you know, da like Daredevil, the Marvel, uh, you know, the Marvel Comics character, um, you know, who's who's been... Uh, Played, played on Netflix as well. And, you know, recently, so a couple of weeks ago, we saw John Wick Chapter 4, in which yes. uh, Donnie Yen uh, plays a sort of blind assassin. D Donnie Yen, um, who, who played a, a similar kind of character in John Wick 4 now, but also was probably seen for the most part by mo many audiences playing a very similar character in Rogue One where he plays a uh, character with force-like abilities who's well, able to um, yeah. uh, fend off against you know, imperial forces, yeah, but very, very similar kind of character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that that ten, tends to be what is suggested is not just that they have overcome this disadvantage, but that because of their, their lack of sight, they have like heightened uh, sense of hearing, that kind of thing. Mm. So they can kind of orientate themselves around their environments. You know, Donnie Yen is, do, is doing a lot of sort of tapping his cane on things to like, so and when he hears the sound, he sort of understands where that thing is in the room and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, Bl Blind Man does not do this so much. So it, it, it sort of it kind of starts trying to do it. There's the opening scene of the film is is really good and really atmospheric, I think, mm. and played really well uh, by uh, by Tony Anthony. Um, so he sort of we're introduced to him, uh, introduced to his blindness by him sort of turning up in this village, and then he asks a guy, "Is there a church tower?" And then he shoots. The church tower bell um yeah so that you know and and rings it you know so that is supposed to suggest to you oh this guy actually has like sort of uh, not supernatural you know but like you know abilities he, he's a better shot uh than he would be if he could see um, but, but also just this idea of him having this very clear sense of sophisticated understanding of what is likely to be the case right yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. not like so like this how that scene plays out is uh is there a church here point me in the direction of the church is the priest rich and the guy says yes and it says okay so he's likely to have a, 
uh, a bell in it. So yeah. he's like, he's almost like he's deduced that actually this is a thing that he can do. So there's a, there's yeah. an ability there to like cleverly surmise what he could use to his advantage based on just him being clever. Yeah, as opposed to just saying, does it have a bell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, actually, to be fair, that would be more clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's sort of, it, so it, it will do uh, bits like this. But, you know, so he, he, he is capable of determining that there is a church bell across the street and shooting it in order to ring it, uh, in order to ring it. Uh, but he's but he's uh, at the same time incapable of detecting the fact that there's a snake in his salad. Yes. Uh, so you know, at some point, you know, someone tries to assassinate him, but you know, he's got like this bowl of salad leaves, and then there's a snake in it, and then at a certain point, the snake hisses, and he kind of stops and goes, "Was that was that a snake? That might have, that and, might have just been my and, lettuce." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. And just carries yeah. on eating, and then like he doesn't. So the, the way you would expect this to be written is that at some point he does detect it and he like and and like he kills the snake by just sort yeah. of identifying by its sound exactly where it is and then strangles it. And then it using his own quick reflexes. Yeah. To, yeah. Completely. That's what I was expecting. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it doesn't do that. At all. No. He, he just sort of falls over. <laughs> no. He, if he falls over, he he flies into a panic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then basically says, uh, "If this snake bites me, I will die." <laughs> yeah. Like, um, oh yes, but that, then argues, that's why we did it. But then, but then <laughs> argues if that happens, then you won't know what I've done with Pilar. You're right, yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. please yeah. save me from this snake. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah. I completely agree, and that's it. And I, I think that there's there are moments in the film where uh, what you're saying before about how, for example, Donnie Yen's character in John Luke Four bangs his cane, and he can tell where people are. And to be fair, like. You know the example you gave about Daredevil is is a little bit problematic because his his powers are enhanced by radioactive ooze, um, so it's not sure. it's not quite you know I mean it's Marvel being Marvel right yeah, he yeah, has yeah. like a special sense of like echolocation or something but um, but in this film I was aware of this throughout a lot of the fight scenes a lot of the time the people he fights are making noise so there was there's a moment where uh, a group of guys um, gang up on him. One's playing the guitar. They're laughing. They're shooting guns at him and yeah. stuff. And then he kills them all. And you could argue that the film is deliberately making them do something that would help him, um, you know, work out what their, where their location is so yeah. that he can kill them effectively. Yeah. I don't think it's explicitly saying that, and I think it probably would need to. If that's the point it's trying to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but then elsewhere, that doesn't seem to help him at all. Um, his final scuffle with Domingo is quite ham-fisted, I think. Yeah, the the film has pitted blind man against Domingo all the way through, yeah. and they finally have a climactic showdown where they end up fighting together in a, like a barn. And actually, what happens is, in order for blind man to eventually get the uh, upper hand, the general appears out of nowhere and just stubs his cigar out on Domingo's eyes. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, which 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 actually then lends itself to a nice a nice uh move on the film's part where you've then got Domingo being blind for the first time facing mm-hmm. him up against a blind man and then both scrabbling around for their guns and stuff. Yeah. What the film doesn't do is give the blind man a moment where he gets the upper hand himself mm-hmm. which I think it needs to because that's the whole point of that kind of character yeah. is to show that he is perfectly capable despite his disability. Yeah. But also effectively showing the contrast between someone who is newly blind and someone who has uh, become effective despite being blind because yeah. they both then spend twenty seconds searching for their guns. Yeah, yeah. Like, and like none, neither of them is better off than the other, <laughs> which which I think is doing them a massive disservice yes, because yeah. early on in the film he's established as someone who's supposed to be quite calm and collected and and very capable despite his blindness. Yeah, yeah. So there's problems all round, really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It's a bit sexist, a bit ableist. <laughs> yeah, race though. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get on to race? Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, so obviously this is uh, set in Mexico. Uh, should make the point, by the way, that uh, we've used the term spaghetti western quite a lot, but this is uh, filmed in Spain, which arguably makes yeah, it that's... more of a paella western. Really, oh, yes. Oh, okay. Very good. Very good. Still made by an Italian director, though, I think is where the, um, uh, the term would come from. But if you want to make your paella joke, you go ahead. <laughs> Would you like me to repeat it so it works better in the edit? No, 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 no. I'm leaving all of this in. <laughs> okay, fine, good. Uh, yeah, race. So, yes. so there are 
plenty of Italian actors in this who are not Hispanic, but I think it, you know, it's fair to say can play sort of convincingly Mediterranean, if you like. Ringo Starr famously is not Mediterranean or Hispanic. Um, it's one of the first yeah. things you notice about him, actually, it when is, you see yeah. him. Uh, so, like, he's very, he's very tanned. Uh, and so, apparently, when he was out there, he, he didn't wear his watch or any of his rings uh, so that his hands would sort of tan uh, evenly. So, like... It's uh, commitment to a role, isn't it? It's commitment <laughs> to a role. Taking your rings off. Yeah, yeah. There, there is, at the, near the end, when... Uh, spoiler alert, uh, Ringo dies. And um, you see him, like, as a corpse uh, at his funeral... And, and in order to like give the, his skin the necessary pallor, he effectively just has his like his own complexion. Is that, that he, right? He has, I think so. Like I don't think yeah. they've like whitened That's him fine. up particularly. Yeah, yeah. They've just you know stopped browning him up. Really. Uh, side note, just on that scene is that um, uh, you see him basically in an open casket, and his uh, Domingo, his brother, um, sort of wipes his face with like a cloth a bit right and you very very visibly see Ringo's eyes tense during that scene despite oh, right. him supposedly being dead I missed that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so he's playing Mexican he's doing the accent I think uh, the accent like if if you say to me oh Ringo stars in this film and he's doing a Mexican accent then you know my hopes are not high for how that's going to go I think he makes a better fist of the accent than you would expect him I'm, to. Yeah, I, I don't know what the problem is, really. Yeah. I mean, other than beyond the, the uh, presumably huge offence <laughs> that Mexicans were <laughs> watching it. Yeah. But overall, this feels very much in keeping of anyone doing a fair uh, shout at a Mexican accent in yeah, this kind of film. I think so. Yeah, there's a bit of Scouse kind of creeps through every now and again. But broadly speaking, he's, he's making a pretty good job of it. I actually think as well, uh, um, he... he plays the character quite well it's a it's a good performance it's quite a startling performance like i i think so. i think you'd be forgiven for watching this film and forgetting that it was ringo star yes. of the beatles playing this character yeah that's true there are some moments where he has quite a sort of like a wide-eyed crazed look yeah. and it looks quite natural there's a bit of like a soullessness but despondency kind of uh, sort of expression that he wears as the character yeah, yeah. Uh, there's also a very nice introduction to him I think in his very first scene he dunks his head in like a barrel full of water yeah. and then lifts his head up uh, to reveal uh, his face as Ringo Starr and I can't remember what his line is but he, he gives a line that's kind of like a, a quick order to his henchmen I know. Yeah. but then does like this, this sort of um, naturalistic thing where he just sort of like exhales like you know gets like the last bit of water out of his mouth or something like that and it's yeah. just quite a like he's a bit annoyed or he's a bit put out by the uh the fact that it's you know he's soaking now soaking wet having dunked his head in water yeah but it's just it feels quite natural like you know we've talked before yeah. about how he does tend to be able to bring these sort of naturalistic performances to these characters yeah uh, and yeah. i feel like it's true here even though it's way beyond what you'd expect him to be able to oh, yeah. do as an actor. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, I mean, this is, like in terms of the performances of his I've seen, it's the one where he is the least recognisable, and that's completely to his credit. He is uh, convincingly quite intense, mm-hmm. I yeah. think. Um, a, a lot of the sort of close-up work he's required to do is where there is a kind of like wide-eyed fury or madness to him. And he he is playing that quite convincingly in general. I think yeah. you know it, it's uh, so. Yeah, apparently, like you know, what what he tried to do was I think he he said something like, uh, you know, what I came up with was to start every scene, you know, acting quite normally, and then sort of build up to become a raving madman through it, you know, in each one. And you can kind of see that, and it works. You know, I, to be honest, with you, I'm just quite impressed that he had like a a strategy to his acting. This is this is yeah. how actors you know build out characters isn't it they yeah. they this is how they decide on uh being consistent in their portrayal of a, of a character the fact that he's actually taken a consistent approach to this performance is is already i think already goes to show that he is committed to to just acting generally and and uh how he's sort of coming at these things in the right way yeah and th- this is sort of part of the reason why i think that this being a western is not insignificant and like westerns being something that he he loves so much you know mm. it's the first time he's had the chance to to act in one uh, it, it, and he is obviously giving it his all you know and yeah. and he is obviously you know there's a seriousness about the way he's prepared for this character and 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 the fact that you know he is approaching it like a good actor does i.e 
I have an idea for how I'm going to do this, as opposed to I'm going to show it. Like, the, here is the script, and I'm going to read the lines in a way that sounds like how human beings talk. You know, yeah. I have thought about this character, what what kind of person this character is, and I'm going to try and act like like that person would act. You know, uh, it's broadly how I understand acting works. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. That's pretty. Um, that's how Daniel Day Lewis puts all... it. I think you know, more or less. You know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a um, there, there's a line in this where he's obsessed with this um, this young girl Pilar, and one of the first lines he has with her basically is when he hits her and rapes her ultimately uh, in the scene. But he forces her to undress, yep. uh, and he has a line where, where he says something like, um, "Like one of these days, I'm going to light a fire under you just for you to have some warmth." <laughs> and it's uh, but it's like you can imagine that written down that is a you know that would be an exasperated line but he brings like a level of aggression to it mm, as well and like yeah. it's actually like uh, it just it took me by surprise it's like oh, actually that's quite a an interesting line reading yeah like that that says a lot about the character that would wouldn't have been on the page yeah so i feel like he's he's you can see he's bringing these things to to the role yeah yeah I, you know and i think i think we're like we're in danger of sort of talking about uh, talking about his performance in like uh, slightly too surprised tones. Yeah, N- not just like oh Ringo Starr's good in this film. Like we know he's a good actor. We've seen we've seen him act before, and we've you know and we've been complimentary about his acting before, and I'm sure we will be again. But he, he, uh, but I think you know he, he, even the idea that he has sort of prepared for this in like not a method way, but in a sort of in the way that you would. Uh, consider that a sort of quote unquote proper actor would. Yeah, a you know. serious dramatic actor would yeah, bring to yeah. his role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah. As, well, actually, yeah, I mean, the, the, your use of the word dramatic there, I suppose, is quite interesting because maybe this is the first sort of properly dramatic yeah. thing he's had to do, you know. So, so you know, so, uh, obviously the Beatles films plus, you know, Magic Christian are quite and, sort of like yeah. knockabout capers, you know. How do you think it compares to Tony Anthony's? A performance in the film obviously he's carrying the uh the movie it's a it's a very interesting character i think it's a compelling character yeah i don't know whether or not he hits every sort of performance beat that he needs to in the film there are there's quite a lot of sort of post kill quipping going on that yeah. kind of fall a bit flat for me yeah there there are sort of lines where what is it there's a there's a line where he says something like um uh, when a girl has you by the shorts and curlies, you're done. <laughs> you know, um, and even when he finds a snake in his food, he's like, what kind of son of a bitch puts a snake in a man's food? <laughs> but it's really slow and deliberate and a bit forced. And yeah. I don't know, it's, it's a character choice, but I don't think it works necessarily. I think he's going for a mix of, um, I think he's an infallible action hero with a sideline in, being relaxed enough to joke about death as it happens yeah but actually his action hero is very very fallible yeah and his jokes aren't funny (laughs) (laughs) you know when we were talking about um give my regards to broad street we were sort of wondering whether actually ringo could have played the role of, of Harry in that, which is a sort of much more significant role. And actually, it is sort of interesting to think, uh, could Ringo have uh, played the role of the blind man in this? You know, yeah. would would that have worked? Now, I mean, it, it is, it, it's actually a role that just, it sort of requires a lot of stillness, if you like, you know. And uh, that um, opening scene that I liked so much is um, really what he's conveying there is, just this sort of like veneer of menace, you know, and um, he's speaking very quietly because he doesn't have to speak loudly in order to be get across the idea that he is threatening and dangerous, you know. Whereas I suppose like, like Ringo is sort of much more amped up, yeah, and he and you can tell that he's uh, he's he's sort of out of control and he's you know more of a loose cannon. And I suppose what what you get from that is when the two of them are sort of adversaries. Uh, it is sort of more volatile. He's going to act much more on impulse, and eventually that's going to get him killed because he makes sort of poor, yes. you know, poor decisions, you know. And actually, I was thinking, I, I wonder if this is the only time I've seen Ringo's character die in a film. Um, so you know, th- there are, um, I think, you know, c- certain stars you read about who have it written into their contract that they never die in a film, yeah. you know. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure Ringo isn't one of them. But at the same time, it, it's. Um, it occurred to me that that was a very specific 
you know, not, not a choice on his part necessarily. But in terms of like, you know, if you, you know, it's, it's 1971, you know, the Beatles split up about, you know, a, a year or two ago at this point, they're still like quite big stars in their own right. Getting Ringo Starr in your film is going to help sell it a little bit. Yeah. But also, you know, he's not, as we've said, he's not really the second lead as he's billed. Uh, he has like a fair amount of screen time and his role is a, is a significant one, but it's certainly not a, a huge one. And the fact that he dies might have been sort of quite a big deal at the time. Might have been like slightly shocking. Yeah, I think there's, you're right, there's probably, it's probably shocking at this point to have seen Ringo die so explicitly. Yeah. Because we actually see his corpse no matter how much the eyes move. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) But again, it probably lends, it it probably is part and parcel of agreeing to play a character that isn't the central focus and the one who carries the movie. Yeah, and I, th- and I think it also um, helps with the idea that he, that this is a bad guy he's playing, a, a, a bad guy who, like, in terms of the sort of uh, the fairly black and white uh, morality of, of films like this, uh, deserved to die. You yes. know, that's a set, you know, I mean, film, it, 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 villains in films are sort of generally set up as being deserving of uh, the death they end up with. Yes, know? yeah. Um, and he certainly is uh, in, in this case, you know. And, and I think that, that actually marks it out as, um, I don't know about a unique performance. I haven't seen enough Ringo Starr performances yet uh, to mark it out as unique. But it certainly feels, uh, it certainly feels like a bit of a line in the sand for, you know, what, what he is doing as an actor and, and sort of how he's thinking about his own star image. And, and sort of how he wants to take this career forward, you know. It doesn't feel to me like he has just taken sort of any old role that was available to him. And so even though it wasn't the biggest role in the film, he's, you know, been forced to go, okay, well, like, no one's offering me starring role, so I'll take this. Yes. It, it does feel like a, you know, a sort of pretty rich opportunity for him to play uh, quite a distinct character and, and do something with it as opposed to just be Ringo Starr, yeah. you know. yeah. No, I completely agree. Going back to the murky moral ground that the film you know, enjoys, I thought it was surprising to me that even even knowing and being familiar with this kind of exploitation movie, it's very weird having Ringo in this film. It, and then and what comes with that is the context of how progressive the Beatles were. Yeah. And it's weird to me. I think I think watching Ringo in this film made me think, oh God, how did this era of this type of movie happen after all of the progressive work that came with the Beatles' career a decade before? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I think partly that is because we tend to focus on the positives when we talk about the Beatles. We yeah. tend to focus on um, all the things that they 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 did and assume that society moved along at the same pace yeah. uh, as them. But but yeah, it seemed quite shocking to me to. To um to have gone from sort of flower power, um all you need is love, to uh quite a horrendous depiction of brutality against women in this film that Ringo is actively complicit in. Yeah, it, 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 it actively complicit in the movie, not in the oh no, <laughs> not in the actual. Yeah, like I'm glad you clarified. Good, that, yeah, know. just in case, <laughs> just in case his lawyers are yes, listening. Yes, of course, you know? yeah, <laughs> as I'm sure. sure they are. Yeah, uh, no, I think. Like it's an interesting point that, that uh, this idea that you know, sort of, five years later, everyone was standing in a field singing "All You Need Is Love," and now you know they're sort of you know uh, shooting women in in, in that <laughs> same field. <laughs> yes, that's, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, no, but I think um, it's one of the things about the '60s as a revolution is that um, uh, is that we tend to think of the '70s as, as a sort of fairly seedy time, you know, like um, when sort of like the the drugs. Like moved from the sort of happy drugs like marijuana and LSD and into the sort of uh, the harder ones like cocaine and heroin, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think also that that the seventies was sort of a, a time, especially in America, was sort of lost souls, if you like, who had sort of um, trying to f- tried to find the answer with sort of gurus and cults and things like this, and had just been and failed to find it, and just been turned turned loose, you know, it was just sort of like roaming around the country. There's lots and lots of homelessness and, and things like that. So, I mean, we, we tend to think of it as a time uh, where, where everything was like quite seedy and quite dirty. But actually, the revolution of the 60s became it sort of came about part and parcel of it was the sort of permissiveness that came with it. And, and perhaps there's an argument that with that permissiveness also comes the permission to be like quite unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, and and I guess 
exploitation, as we mentioned or we touched on briefly before, was was an experiment, if you were in how far those boundaries could be pushed, particularly in terms of like film certification. And I think, uh, you know, it's it's worth pointing out that there was a longer cut of this film that hasn't been released in the UK because um, it had to be edited down quite heavily for the uh, BBFC yeah. in order to be released at all. So I think it came out in, in the UK months after its uh, initial release in the rest of Europe. But I think there's a, there's a part of that that comes with exploitation movies, isn't it? The idea is how sadistic can we get? How violent can we be? Mm. How sexualized can we be? Mm. And I, and I, you can see that as being an extension from the you know initial permissiveness, like you say, in, um, that that came about from the sixties flower power. Mm. But the, but these are these are taboos, and sort of art at this point is sort of. Uh, are pushing these taboos, you know. So, I mean, it's still a sort of fairly new idea. There still isn't really any swearing on television at this point. So I suppose that in in terms of swearing even being included in recorded music, I suppose uh, John Lennon's just done Working Class Hero around this time, has he, which has, which has an F-bomb in it. Um, you know, so that that's a bit new. Um, but I, I, I think, it, like, in a sense, um, if cinema at this point is going to start uh, pushing those boundaries and sort of exploring how much you know sort of violence and sex it, it can put in but the western is sort of the obvious place where that is going to happen it seems literal to me. wild west right exactly where there are you know the entire films uh is an entire genre is populated by outlaws literal outlaws yeah and this this is the appeal of westerns and always has been i.e it's that sort of american libertarian ideal of uh, this guy rides into town and just sorts everything out. You know, yeah. there's no there's no state intervention. You know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, like this. Uh, you know, this uh, the the mayor of this town is messing everything up, and actually, what it needs is just one guy to come in with a firm hand, just to you know, ride into town, shoot a few guys, get a hooker. You know, <laughs> like this is you know, and this is why it's sort of you know, you know, sort of Clint Eastwood is the sort of the sort of ideal Hollywood r- Republican totem in the same way that sort of ronald reagan was as well to some degree in that this is sort of what uh westerns are all about it is this this uh libertarian idea of just taking decisive action not relying on anyone else doing everything yourself so like within that this is sort of part of the popularity of westerns is maybe the idea that this is a place where you could do whatever you wanted you know so it makes complete sense now that the seventies are getting going, and you know, and and everyone is now on heroin and having lo- lots really? of really unpleasant casual sex, um, <laughs> that um, uh, that you know, that, it it makes sense that this is the landscape, the cinematic landscape on which these kind of fantasies and narratives are going to play out. So, following that extremely good point about the cinematic landscape of the Western during the seventies, thank you. What do you think of the song that Ringo Starr wrote for this film? <laughs> so uh, he wrote Blind Man yeah. uh, for the film. Yeah. It is a song that appears on Goodnight Vienna. Yep. The lyrics of the song very much tell the story of what happens in this film. Mm. And from what I could find out uh, online... The, the song was rejected from use in the film. Yeah. Um, it seems a shame if you've built the song around the film. Uh, and, and, and obviously the recording of it is very much in the same style. Like it's, it has a West, it has a sort of country and, and, you know, Western feel to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a shame. I think there's like a lot of effort to have gone into it. Sorry, I was laughing to myself because it just occurred to me that like, like, wouldn't it be funny if like for the film Men in Black, like Will Smith had written the song Men in Black and they said, um, yeah, actually, I'm not no. sure. Not sure this works, actually. Will. What am I supposed to do with it now? Like, there were lots of examples uh, of that that I can think of to back that up, but all of them also feature Will Smith. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. That was that was very much what he was up to yeah. in, the, in the '90s, is writing the theme tune for his, his own films. And fair play to him; he did quite well out of it. Yeah, yeah. but um, but yeah, yeah. It, it does feel a little bit like yeah, you're right. I think Will Smith has mastered the art of the movie song tie-in, and yeah. I think his he, he, the, the way that he was able to do that was to approach it in the correct way, which was 
would you like me to write a song for this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get permission first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then go and write the song. Yes. It doesn't feel like that's what happened with Ringo. No, no. No, so I'm not sure it's his best work, uh, to be honest. Uh, so I think it eventually ends up on the B side of Back Off Boogaloo. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it, it's, I hadn't, I wasn't really familiar with the song. I listened to it last night and it, it, it's not melodically, it doesn't particularly go anywhere. I think it's mm. fair to say. There's a little bit of, um, uh, my, my favorite part of it is, it is there is a moment in the song where, the, the the meter doesn't quite work, and yeah. uh, and at least for my listening to it, it feels like there there are too many syllables in one particular line. Yeah, and where Ringo double tracks his voice, he's got two vocals that he's singing at the same time. They both kind of fall out of sync with each other during this one particular line, and then one of those tracked vocals he just ends up giving up on at that point and halfway through and doesn't come back into it again for right. a few lines later. And I just feel like, I mean, I don't know, like obviously, obviously at this point of recording, that is something that anyone would have picked up on said, do you want to do another take? Like, <laughs> like there is no reason for during the recording of this song for him to have made a mistake and to have got out of time with himself uh, and then to like sort of clumsily just not sing that line anymore and it's coming a few lines later. Yeah. But in my mind, that is exactly what has happened when I listen to that song because it just seems like um, they just, yeah, just he just didn't get the rhythm right because there's just too many syllables. <laughs> so gave up. Anyway, feel free to, to look up that song, Blind Man, uh, on Goodnight Vienna and you know, let us know if you agree that that's what's happened. <laughs> So I think on the whole, the film starts with a really good concept in this idea of translating the, the Zatoichi character into a an, into a Western. And I enjoyed watching this film for the novelty of watching a Western because I don't tend to do that often. Yeah, I mean, But I did find there were a lot of flaws in it. I feel like it could have been... I, I feel like the, the this whole notion of exploitation era filmmaking uh, is always problematic anyway, but I think what comes with that is uh, a low budget, and with a low budget tends to come uh, some sort of script problems. Uh, I think there were moments in this film that frustrated me a bit. There, there's a point where Blind Man somehow managed to get hold of an entire train at his disposal with which to transport these women, yeah. which he's presumably held up, but that happens off screen. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like that would have been quite an interesting thing to have um to have seen some of, you know. Yeah. There were just moments like that and, you know, I think some of the lines could have done more work. Um so I kind of got a little bit frustrated throughout I, I was impressed with Ringo's performance and I liked the idea of the film, but overall I was left a little bit cold by by this just the period of which it was made, mm. you know, and, and how that tends to mean that there are elements of this kind of film that I just don't enjoy particularly. Yeah, yeah. How did you find it? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm i not a, a, a big uh, Westerns fan in general. I do. It is a genre that does tend to sort of leave, leave me a little bit cold on the whole. I enjoyed this much more than I was expecting to. I expected to, fi- to find it like a bit of a laugh uh, as much as anything else. I thought there were some really convincingly intense performances in it. You know, R- Ringo's being uh, one that is absolutely deserve- deserving of praise. I think Lloyd uh, Batista, um, who plays Domingo, um, is is really excellent. I mean, it, it like he's actually. I think that, that ro- roles like that, where you're a Mexican bandit and you're sort of in control, and then you sort of lo- lose a bit of control because the hero is um, is threatening you. It's very easy to slip into cliche, and I did. I didn't think he slipped into cliche. There, there are absolutely times when the film itself slips into cliche, but I didn't think he did. Um, the, of course, like the film's morals and its politics are absolutely all over the place. Uh, but there are like some quite satisfying twists in it. That scene on the train that you're talking about is where blind man has you know seemingly managed to get these women all on the train it's then revealed that they aren't the women he thought they'd be yeah. um uh which is a twist that I didn't, I didn't i didn't see coming at all you know so there are bits where they sort of use his blindness in a way to sort of uh come up with these twists there are as we've discussed uh <laughs> a lot of places far too many places where uh, they don't make use 
of the sort of central gimmick that this is a blind man who is a skilled, uh, you know, gunslinger um, in a way that just with a bit of tightening up would have been quite easy to achieve, you know. So I think that um, it sounds like we agree this is a uh, capable, effective Western that just has some significant fundamental flaws. Uh, yep. Uh, if... Uh, anyone at home has watched the film do you agree with us or are we goddamn crazy gringos let us know by contacting us on all the usual social media platforms we are at beatles films pod uh, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode why not leave us a review or a five-star rating on your streaming platform of choice otherwise we will see you again next week for another episode and until then thanks for listening goodbye goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.